Well, today we are starting a new sermon series and is uh, going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And the subtitle is The Frustrations of Life. Now, I've come to appreciate Ecclesiastes a lot in recent years. You know, my early years of the Christian faith, I often looked to the Bible as a little bit, uh, kind of like an encyclopedia. I would have questions, and then I would go to the Bible, and I'd look for answers to those questions. But Ecclesiastes never really fit that paradigm, because I would read Ecclesiastes, and I would often have more questions. I would be even more confused. And it was difficult for me to stomach also because Ecclesiastes seemed at the surface to contradict other parts of the Bible. You know, a book like Proverbs, for example, it would give me morals and principles. And it would say, if you do this, then this thing will happen to you and everything will be good. But Ecclesiastes often would say, you know, if you do this, then you don't know what's going to happen. Like it might work out and it might not work out. So why are you even trying to do this thing? And um, it, it was just hard to process. So why bother, you know, and, and why even try it? And I would come away feeling kind of the sense of hopelessness and aimlessness. Um, so throughout the sermon series, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into some of these frustrations of life, some of these aspects where, it, you know, Ecclesiastes seems to highlight these things where you work so hard, but it feels like, what, what's the point? Or um, you try so hard to uh, be healthy and but, but eventually you'll die. And so you, these things happen as part of our lives, and, um, and it's hard to process and hard to make sense of it all. And so we'll highlight some of these things, and then we'll talk about why sometimes these frustrations, even though in the, in the moment they're frustrating, obviously, in the long run they're actually healthy for us. Because what they do is they shake us out of our contentment, and they... They challenge us to hope in something beyond our current lives. And so uh, this sermon series, we're not going to go through the whole book chapter by chapter. Uh, and the reason is Ecclesiastes isn't really a linear book. Um, it jumps around quite a bit, and there's a lot of chapters that have overlapping topics. And I think that's reflective of one of the central themes of Ecclesiastes, which is that life is often not linear. Life often doesn't neatly go from point A to point B to point C. Oftentimes life is a bit like nature. You have the rising and the setting of the sun. You have the spinning of the earth, the changing of the seasons, and it just repeats itself over and over a little bit aimlessly without a clear point. And uh, there's nothing new under the sun. And so Ecclesiastes is written a little bit like that. So uh, that will shape our sermon series, and so what we're going to do is we're going to break up Ecclesiastes not by chapter, but by topic. We're just going to highlight some of the main topics that are covered in Ecclesiastes one by one, and, uh, and, and how each of these categories, they can be frustrating in life, but yet we can find God through them as well. Today we're talking about the frustration of wisdom, but first before we talk about that, we're going to talk a little bit about this overall topic of frustration, all right? Um, let's read the opening of Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 2, and it goes, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. So this introduces us really quickly to the topic of the book, which is that uh, everything is meaningless. Now, the author here is self-described as a teacher, and later we, we sort of flesh out who this person is. It's most likely King Solomon, 
and regarded as, in the Bible as one of the wisest men, if not the wisest man who has ever lived. Um, you know, many scholars, they often point out that some of the Hebrew point to a later time period. So it's possible that, you know, maybe later editors came around and added some stuff. But it, it, I think it's reasonable to say that King Solomon wrote the bulk of the book. And, um, and what he does is he begins by saying, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now let's talk a little bit about this word meaningless. Okay, the Hebrew word here is hevel, or hevel, and it doesn't really have an English equivalent. It can mean meaningless, or senseless, or absurd, or vain, or empty. Literally, uh, it, it can also mean breath or vapor. In fact, um, Psalm 39:11 uses this word hevel in this way. It says, when you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely, everyone is but a breath. All right, so there's this side comment, like, we are all a breath, a vapor, a hevel. And uh, it's this idea that everything on earth, it comes and goes. And sometimes it feels like it's, it's an instant. You blink your eyes, and it's, it's gone. Um, and uh, Hannah Anderson She's this author. She wrote a Bible study guide on Ecclesiastes, and she wrote this about this word, Hevel. Life is both short and hard to grasp. You cannot hold on to it, nor can you completely understand it while you're living it. Like a vapor, it rises quickly, coiling and twisting upward with no defined shape or direction until it simply disappears. And that's what much of life feels like sometimes, is Things are moving and changing and transforming, and it seems like it's going this direction. It seems like it's going that direction. You're, just, you're starting to make sense of it, and then it's gone. Um, you know, another thing fascinating about this word Hevel is this is also the name of Cain's brother. In Genesis 4, Adam and Eve, they have two kids, Cain and Abel. And in the English, we read Abel. But in the Hebrew, it's actually the same word, Hevel. And I think that's intentional because Abel, his life, represents this concept as well. Abel, he sought to do what was right. He sought to honor God. He gave this, if you're not familiar with the story, he gave this sacrifice to God. And then pretty soon afterwards, he just dies. He gets killed by his brother. And it's just like his whole life was a breath, a vapor. He was here one moment and, and gone the next. Another thing we often do when we try to understand what the meanings of uh, words in the Old Testament are, is we can look at the Septuagint. So if you're not familiar, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, mostly Hebrew. And then uh, the first major translation of the Old Testament happened in the second century BC. And this was into Greek in, in Alexandria, mostly. And uh, we call that the Septuagint. And uh, in fact, in the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, they're often quoting the Septuagint, because the New Testament was written in Greek. Anyways, oftentimes we can look at what the words that were chosen in the Septuagint to sort of get at the meaning of the, the Hebrew Bible as well. So the Greek Septuagint, it translates this word, hevel, as a Greek word, matayotes. And uh, this is an interesting choice, because matayotes, it, it, it appears it's, it's not very common at all in the Greek world, but it appears a few times in the New Testament, and I think that gives us a glimpse of what this word is. So, for example, this comes up in Romans 8.20, and this is what Paul writes in Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, that's the word, not by its own choice, 
but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And so Paul is writing about this creation, our whole planet, our whole world, how it's been subjected to frustration. Some translations use the word futility, subjected to futility. And it's this idea that this whole world is now, it, it feels frustrating, it feels futile, it feels meaningless. Um, and so I think it's, that's an interesting word choice, and I think we can sort of take all those concepts and apply back to this passage in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Okay, so I'm going to read from my own made-up version, the Larry Lynn version, okay? Let's try this out. Frustrating, frustrating, says the teacher, utterly frustrating, everything is frustrating. Now that resonates with me. I don't know if you've ever had days where it feels like everything is frustrating. Okay, work is frustrating, relationships are frustrating, your family's frustrating, you know, your, your health is frustrating, your finances are frustrating, everything is frustrating. And, uh, and it seems like, and what, what's difficult about, you know, frustrating moments, what makes things frustrating, frustrating rather, is this idea that you thought that you could fix things, but you can't, and it's out of your control. All of our efforts to fix things, to address things, it seems, it seems to be in vain. Um, and so throughout Ecclesiastes, the author is talking about how life is so frustrating. And, uh, and to begin with, in, in the first chapter, one thing that he talks about to kick things off is how the pursuit of wisdom and the pursuit of knowledge is also frustrating. So that's what we're focusing on today. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom, knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So here the author claims to have more wisdom than anyone who's ever lived. But he says it's just like chasing after the wind. I don't know if you've ever tried chasing after the wind before. Like, you, you can never catch the wind, right? It doesn't matter if you're using a butterfly net, a jar. Like, it's, it's, it's an impossible task. And then he explains why. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. You know, I often, I don't know if you relate to this, but I feel like the more I know, the more I realize I don't know anything at all. The more I know, the less I realize I know. And this is true, I think, of any topic under the sun. You can think of any topic. You know, let's just take math, all right? When I was young, I thought I was pretty good at math. Okay, I would get A pluses and things like that, and, and I got a great score on my SAT. And, and then I went to college, and I studied engineering, and I was taking linear equations and differential, uh, no, it's not linear algebra and differential equations, and I realized I actually don't know a whole lot about math. There's actually a lot of stuff that's very challenging for me, a lot of things that are difficult for me to understand. You know, I used to, uh, another example, I used to think I knew a lot about politics, and, uh, and, and we see this a lot on social media. 
oftentimes the people who are the loudest voices on social media are the people who actually don't know very much at all. And the people who actually do know a lot, they often have more nuanced positions. But anyways, I, you know, I used to be like that. I used to, you know, I would read one article and I would think I would be like smarter than these experts who studied these things for decades. And, um, and but, but I realized, you know, the more you read, this is how politics works, the more you read, the more you realize actually it's more complicated than I realized, the more I realized I don't know all the facts. Um, I realized that things are, more, are very nuanced and complicated. And I think the same thing also goes for theology. You know, early on in the faith, I think many of us, we have a very black and white approach to theology, and what we do is, you know, someone older and wiser than us, they say, hey, this is right, because this is biblical, believe this. This is wrong, that's not biblical, don't believe that. And it's a pretty straightforward paradigm, we just go along with that. And then later in life, we meet people who are Christians, and they believe different things. And at the beginning, we might just go, oh, that's because I'm biblical and you're not biblical. And it's, it was just sort of, that's it. But then we, the more we talk and the more we learn, the more we realize it's not th that I'm biblical and they're not biblical because they're actually believing the same thing. They think they're biblical and I'm not biblical. And so what is it? And, and, and we realize, you know, it's, it's often we just interpret the text in different ways, often because of the way we were raised or because of our culture, because of prior assumptions we have when we come to the text. So it's not as simple as, you know, I used to say, like, oh, I do exegesis, and you, they do eisegesis. And that's fancy for saying, like, oh, what I do is I interpret the text as it is, but they force their interpretations onto the text. But, like, everybody claims that. Nobody says, oh, you know what, I'm just going to force my interpretation. No one says that. That's just, a, you know, a claim we make on other people. And I soon realized, you know, this is just an oversimplified understanding. Everybody uh, is trying earnestly, not everybody, but a lot of people are trying earnestly to study the Bible, to reach their own conclusions that's faithful to the text. So who was right? And, um, you know, and, and so gradually, you know, what I started to do is I, I took it on myself to try to understand the other side on all sorts of topics. You know, you know the age of the earth, speaking in tongues, and I would... Do, I would try to understand why do people believe things that were different from what I believed. And sometimes when I would read the other side, I would find myself actually changing my mind and go, you know what, actually they're right and I'm wrong. And sometimes I would study and I would say, you know what, I think I'm still right and I still think they're wrong. But almost always, regardless of what the end conclusion was, when I go through this process, I would find myself more nuanced and more compassionate towards people who disagree. And I think that that's, I think that has to happen when we increase in knowledge in any topic is we understand things are more complicated, things are more nuanced, and, uh, and in a sense, um, what we know, is, we realize, is just a shadow of a full truth. Um, you know, and this is how knowledge works, is oftentimes advanced knowledge complicates simple knowledge. You know, so here's another example. So when you first learn to spell in school, you know, you learn something like I before E except after C, you know. Uh, so like when you, when you say the word believe, for example, you spell B-E-L-I-E-V-E. -E -E. 
But then when you have the word receive, you go R-E-C-E-I-V-E. -E -E, so you, you have to switch the I and the E. So that's just a rule you learn. And then later you learn there's words like caffeine, which doesn't, it doesn't follow the rule. Or the words like neither, it doesn't follow the rule. And so that happens when you grow in knowledge is you realize a lot of these principles you learn, they're just principles. But sometimes there are other things that complicate the principles. Um, and it can feel frustrating at times to learn and you think you know what's up and then you learn some more and realize, you know what, actually, that's not really true all the time and things are more complicated. And um, I think that's part of growth and knowledge. Like when we think about growth and knowledge and wisdom, it's not just about accumulating information so that you know this and you know this and you know this, but part of the journey involves growing in our understanding of our limitations. It's not just about knowing answers, it's also about knowing our limitations. Um, there's this passage in Ecclesiastes 6, 11 to 12 that has always challenged me, and it goes, um, the more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? You know, when I was prepping this sermon, I was thinking about this verse, and I was just like, how can I preach a sermon given this? Well, I should just... I should just sit down, you know? And, I, and, I, and in verse 12, it flushes this out a little bit. You know, it says, For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? You know, this is just so sobering and so insightful at the same time because, you know, sometimes in the Christian community, we have this high regard for people who are teachers, people who can say a lot of words, and uh, people who are maybe their mentors and disciplers and, and things like that. And I think this verse ought to humble those of us who are in positions like that and just make us go, we don't know a lot of things. And we cannot be so arrogant to claim that we know everything about this person, everything about that person, and if we do this, this will work out. We just shouldn't have that mentality because there's a lot we don't know. And sometimes, you know, by your many words, you're actually not profiting anybody. Um, you know, several months ago, uh, I was on Facebook. I, I, was, I wrote this post about, uh, I was just recounting an experience I had when I was in college. You know, when I was in college, I was in charge of this um, uh, interfellowship Christian organization. We just did these interfellowship events, all right, and where we invited different Christian groups to get together to do these events. And we had this one event where we invited all these Christian groups. And then someone from the Catholic Fellowship reached out to me and asked if he could join. And we had always done stuff with Protestants. And so I didn't know much about Catholicism at all. I just knew they recognized the Pope and they did Hail Marys. That's all. I didn't know very much. And, and so I met up with him and I just asked him what he believed on different things. I sort of, it was almost like an interview. And, and I came away thinking, I think we're very different people. I don't even know if this guy is saved. And then, and so I said, no. I said, you can't come to this thing. And then I was, in this Facebook post, I was talking about what happened, and I was saying, in hindsight, I felt like I was wrong. And I, I just frankly, I didn't know much about Catholicism at all. I didn't understand the paradigm. And now I would say that Catholics, most Catholics at least, just like most Protestants, are actually saved. And they just have a different vocabulary, a different paradigm for doing things, different emphases. And then um, I had a friend who was a college friend, he commented, and he said, uh, honestly, what did any of us college kids know about spiritual leadership? 
And I remember thinking, like, that's just so true. Like, who was I? I was like a junior in college. I didn't know anything. I, I, I barely knew what Catholic theology was about, and I, but I felt like I had the wherewithal to discount over a billion people on earth who were Catholics. And, um, yeah, and it just, it just struck me, like, it was just like, you know, it's kind of like a kid giving marriage advice to another kid. Like, what, why you, what do you know about marriage, you know? That's how I felt. You know, I'm reminded of this quote I heard a long time ago. A Christian is just a beggar telling other beggars where he got his food. And I really think that's just all, that's all we do. Regardless of what position you have, how eloquent you are, how well-read you are, that's all we really do is we're just beggars. We're telling each other where we got our food. There's no reason for any of us to feel, you know, superior to other people because we've read a few more books than them or because we took a few more classes than them because, or fill in the blank. Um, you know, I remember uh, in my college ministry days, I was talking to another friend who's, who did college ministry, and he made this interesting point. So we were talking about discipleship, and he said he didn't believe that Christians should disciple other Christians. And I was like, oh, what, what do you mean by that? And he's like, Christians should not disciple one another. Christians should point one another to Jesus because we should not be discipled by people who don't know squat. We should be discipled by Jesus. And so he says, and he was just saying, no one on earth is qualified to be a discipler uh, to, 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 because we're all fallen, we're all broken, we're all too f- limited and biased. What we should do is we meet with one another regularly and we collectively point one another to Jesus, who is our discipler. And I, I, just, I just never heard it framed that way. I found it kind of fascinating. And so I'm not against using that language. I still sometimes use that language, like, you know, a Christian is discipling another Christian. So I don't think it's wrong to use that language. But I felt like he was making a great point, and that point has always stuck with me, which is that when you are discipling someone or when you are meeting up with someone for the purposes of helping them grow, you can use whatever language, if you're meeting with someone for the purpose of helping them to grow, it needs to be clear from the, from the get-go, you are not the point. You are not the model. You're not the leader, ultimately. The goal is to point them not to you but to Jesus. And I think it's a different way of looking at discipleship. And I think that's the point of some of these verses in Ecclesiastes, which is to recognize at the end of the day, we can pursue knowledge all we want, but we won't know a whole lot, which means we are not the most qualified teachers. We're not the most qualified counselors. The more we know, the more we realize we don't know, and therefore we cannot be the primary source of wisdom or the primary source of counsel the primary source of advice to the people around us. We can try. We can try to give the best we can, you know, to those around us. If people give us problems or present us with these life situations, we can try with the best of our ability to say, if I were in your shoes, this is what I think you should do, and here's some principles I've learned, and here's, I want to pass them on. We can do all of those things, but at the end of the day, we should also recognize that we could be wrong. We can be fickle. And we can't be finite. So what do we do? You know, do we just give up? Do we just resort to, you know, sort of this nihilism or fatalism and say, oh, I have no idea. I can't help you. You know, there are some people, that's sort of the other extreme, 
that's exactly what they do is they sort of in this position where you know they they take don't judge others and they take it to the extreme where they so they, they never say anything about anybody because they just don't know i don't know what it's like to be you so you do you and i do me so that is that is sort of the other extreme but i don't think that's the path either i think the path of the christian what we should do is not to say hey i'm the primary source of wisdom come to me and i'll tell you everything you need to know what we should do is we should point people to jesus jesus is the primary source of wisdom um, the book of ecclesiastes was written you know centuries before jesus ever walked the earth and i think because of that the way we should read it should be read in that light you know there is a sense of fatalism in ecclesiastes because outside of jesus life is fatalistic there's a sense of senselessness and emptiness and meaninglessness and hopelessness because outside of jesus that's that's all we that's all we're left with if jesus hadn't ever come then ecclesiastes would be the logical conclusion it's like why try it all why why speak into other people's lives at all but as christians we understand we live on the other side of the cross and so we don't have to live fatalistically we can turn to jesus and we can encourage others to turn to jesus as well the message of jesus i think uh is what people are looking for and and, and the message of jesus also ironically it runs against all human efforts to pursue wisdom um other than this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is talking about um, how people have tried to pursue wisdom in different forms, but God came and he flipped everything on his head. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate where is the wise person where is the teacher of the law where is the philosopher of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of god the world through its wisdom did not know him god was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe jews demand signs and greeks look for wisdom but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and foolishness to gentiles but to those whom god has called both gentiles uh, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So, what Paul is talking about here, he's saying humans throughout history, they've tried to pursue wisdom in different ways. But in doing so, they've never been able to find God. They've never been able to find ultimately what they're looking for. It's all a lost cause, nothing matters. So, what did God do? He came to us. He didn't just stay far away and let us, you know, grope around in the dark. He came to us, but also not in the way we would expect. He came in the form of this bloody man on a cross, mocked for all to see. You know, powerful people, they pride themselves with their many grand words. But Jesus was not like that. The earlier we read, the more the words, the less the meaning. And so Jesus, he didn't just teach us words. He actually walked the talk. He was, as the scriptures say, he was like a lamb. A silent lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't open up his mouth. It was through his actions that true wisdom can be found. 
And true wisdom is to know God. Salvation has come, and we are able to know God not through our human efforts of knowledge and wisdom, but by the grace and the love of God alone. We're not saved by our good wisdom or by our good theology or by our good ability to memorize Bible verses. It's not through our brains that we are saved. We're saved by Jesus' death and his resurrection. And that is where true wisdom is found. You know, so back to this question we asked earlier, like, should we just give up? Why do we even try? Should we, you know, why try to pursue knowledge or wisdom at all if, it's, if we don't know anything anyways? The motivation to pursuing wisdom, to pursuing knowledge, to learning, is not so that we would feel good about ourselves for knowing a lot of things, because at the end of the day, we won't know a whole lot of things. In fact, it's not even so that we would know all the answers. We do this because that is the way we know Jesus. Jesus has laid life out in such a way such that by pursuing wisdom, by pursuing knowledge, and coming up short and realizing we are finite and we're limited and we're biased, we would feel this frustration, we will feel this desperation, we will feel the need for a Savior. And that's where Jesus comes in. We can surrender our desire to be know-it-alls. We can surrender our desires to be the source, the fountain of knowledge, and instead we can accept our place as people in need of a Savior, as people who don't know it all, but who can trust in the fact that God knows it all. And one day, he will make everything clear. We can accept our roles as simply as beggars, telling each other where we got our food. And that food is Jesus, the bread of life. Let's pray together. The worship team will come up, and then we'll close. Father, we thank you so much for um, this book of Ecclesiastes and just the way it challenges us. Uh, to recognize our limitations and the folly of thinking that we're all that. Um, we pray that uh, we would have the proper understanding, the proper view of who we are. Um, we're not know-it-alls, and we have many limitations. We are finite. Uh, by the same time, we are loved. And... Uh, we are so dear to you. Um, we pray that in all of our relationships, uh, we review them not through the lens of how can I teach you this or how can I shape you this or how can I fix you, but just we could recognize that we don't have all the answers. And so rather we should be saying, how can I lead you to Jesus? And how can I invite Jesus into our relationship so that Jesus can teach you and Jesus can lead you and Jesus can fix you? Uh, we're gonna... um, God, there's so much in this world to know and sometimes it feels like the more we know, the less we know. But God, I pray that that would not bring us to this point of this place of futility or fatalism or frustration ultimately but that would just put us in awe of who you are to know that you know so many things 
you've established so many things. Your ways are not our ways. And even though we can't exert our control over it all, you can. And so we trust in you and not on ourselves. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.